Hello and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. During the holidays, we thought we'd share a couple of our most popular podcasts that we did in 2021 that really set the stage for 2022 and beyond. In this Banking Transform podcast from last February, we interviewed Pinar Ozkan. Pinar is a professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at the Said Business School at Oxford University. She's also the academic director of the Oxford Future Finance and Technology Initiative at Oxford. Pinar in this episode discusses how open banking is a catalyst for the reinvention of the banking sector. By redefining the way data is collected and shared, open banking puts the consumer at the center of the relationship while lowering the barrier to entry into the financial services sector. So welcome to the show, Pinar. Before we start, could you provide our listeners a short backgrounder on your work at Oxford University? Of course. Uh, And thank you, Jim, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And this is such a relevant topic. So what we do at Oxford at Said Business School is within the context of the fintech research initiative, we're looking into how technology is disrupting the financial sector. And in particular, looking into regulatory frameworks that serve as catalysts such as open banking and open finance movements and the the influx of fintechs coming into different markets and based on their regulatory context, what difficulties they might be facing, data rights and how those affect and of course, access to data simply because you cannot innovate in banking without access to data. So we're really trying to understand how data uh, regulation and entrepreneurship kind of work together in this particular and very interesting context. So you just completed a research study with Ryan Jones on the rise of big tech players in banking. In your research, you discussed the impact of the expansion of open banking on the innovation process in financial services, as you mentioned. Can you share some of your findings with our audience? Open banking has come into the UK and EU already three years ago, and we're starting to see effects of it. What it really is, is the way for newcomers to have the ability to innovate by accessing the consumer data that resides in banks. This is specifically for payment data so far, but regulators have an interest to widen it up and include all sorts of financial data, making it available for newcomers upon, of course, the consent of the consumers. What that does is really powerful because basically what regulators are saying there is that data is going to be the basis of competition. However, when you think about data, who is the most powerful party in the world having data across different sectors? It's the big platforms, it's the GAFAM, it's the big tech. And what we're seeing is that by opening it up uh, finance to, to third parties for them to come in and access to data, we're also running the risk of turning the market to an even more oligopolistic position by changing the power from big banks to big tech players who have the ability to access financial data and to combine it with the data that they already have from consumers in order to provide more tailored, more interesting services to us, but of course also dominating that industry. So it's interesting, open banking has been seen as a regulatory concept, especially in the UK, but outside of the regulatory environment, aren't consumers building their own open banking style solutions, picking and choosing what providers to use for specific services, such as money transfers, savings, lending, or investing. I mean, are are consumers kind of building their own open banking concept? 
Absolutely. And consumers are starting to use these services around the world. And in a sense, you don't need open banking in order to innovate in banking because there are many fintechs around the world that are coming into markets and finding innovative ways. And, you know, in the simplest form, screenscaping can be used to access data before you get to open banking and APIs. It just happens that APIs are kind of a better way, more efficient and more secure way to do it. But around the world, we see a fintech revolution where these new players are coming into the market. And in a sense, if you think of a bundle of financial services, these fintechs are typically attacking one service at a time and therefore causing an unbundling of services and banking. How has the pandemic impacted both innovation and open banking from your perspective? I think that the pandemic, as we already see it in ourselves, has really caused a push for digitalization for firms. If you don't have a digital presence, if you don't have a way to reach consumers without a human touch, then you are going to be kind of going out of the game, which is, uh, I think it's it's a trend that's not going to be reversed. We are so ready to keep going uh, remote in our work and to access services, even food remotely, you know, getting it delivered to our home and that much of that behavior is not going to change in the future. What that means for the market, I mean, there are several consequences. First of all, We know that fintech services are going to be more important because people have become more digitally savvy and they are looking for uh, better options in order to manage their finances. And we have seen that fintechs can really be a powerful tool for consumers in the pandemic environment because they have helped, for example, with arranging furloughs for small to medium businesses. We have seen how they can help customers smoothing their income when there has been a disruption, asking for loans and even government loans were handled in a much more efficient way through fintech platforms. So consumers are starting to use them. They're starting to trust them, which is a great development. On the flip side, however, what the pandemic has brought is just a kind of a bit of a drought in terms of investments. And so we see still investments happening in fintech, but, you know, the investors are much more selective, which means that there's probably going to be a little bit of a shakeout in the fintech market uh, soon. Not just in the fintech marketplace, but even the banking marketplace, because, you know, I've said before that with the pandemic, as you said, the investors have become more selective and the big have gotten bigger. A lot of the investment has gone toward the the bigger players that had more stability and had shown more of a track record and in many cases had made some money, uh, which is not usual for many of the fintech organizations. And then on the banking side, you know, your midsize, your smaller organizations, you can get into a situation where the investment needed to play with the big boys can be cumbersome. And I think we're going to see some combination of organizations because of this as well. But you mentioned in your study also that the use of mobile payments due to the pandemic actually was a gateway for the big tech platforms, because as people got engaged with Amazon or or Apple or, or Google or Facebook... Any purchases on those platforms use, obviously, digital payments. But really, when you look at this, the use of their insights, as you brought up, is really going to drive some new competitive insight because they can use their recommendation engines fairly easily to expand into financial services, can't they? Exactly. And we see, so basically, mobile payments have always been a great way to collect data. And now when you see that data multiply tenfold, hundredfold, because people are afraid of uh, touching cash, we see the generation of data is going to really help big tech, which are uh, dominating uh, mobile payments right now, 
to, to expand their prediction power. And that means that we are going to see a competitive advantage rising from uh, more data, and we're going to prefer their services much more compared to other services, just because they have the data to, to figure out who we are and therefore how to make us happy. So in the past, 80% of consumers refused to switch financial institutions, some just out of habit and sometimes because they were concerned about the trust um, factor or the safety factor of fintech organizations. However, as these fintech organizations have been in place longer and as some of these solutions have become really, really, really dynamic in their ability to solve consumers' financial problems digitally, do you see maybe that this is going to change the consumer's perception about wanting to switch or will they simply take out parts of their relationship and move to other organizations for the other parts? I think the latter of what you just said has already happened. We see that with this unbundling of services, for example, if you are interested in getting a loan and if you are in need of this loan, then you are going to look further than just your bank. And when you get a better rate from a trusted player in the market that is licensed and looks legitimate, then you are probably likely to trust them and you already start to unbundle this way. But you will also unbundle, for example, I just signed up with a pension provider in order to kind of privatize my pension because I thought, you know, there's just so much more I could do. And so that is the first step. And in the future, you know, with account switching uh, regulations being in place, just like, you know, uh, mobile service uh, switching uh, regulations, in order to make sure that consumers have more choice, we will see that, you know, especially new generations are probably going to go with digital players to start with. But we have to keep in mind that uh, the new generations, uh, they are a different generation. They save less. They are much more about life experiences. They're not interested necessarily in buying a home which puts interesting pressures on these new banks because there's not as much revenue coming per user. And so what is going to be the driver of profit there is an interesting question to ask. So some legacy banks have built digital banking units to spur innovation, digital service expansion, sometimes simply assist in the leadership and culture challenges of delivering a digital solution through a legacy platform. Do you think this is a viable long-term solution or is it simply a band-aid on a much bigger problem? Um, I think it, it can be a solution, especially if that digital bank can provide enough competition to the competitive digital competitors out there. But most importantly, that digital arm, that new bank can be a way for the larger bank to learn, to experiment. And when you talk to bank executives, one of the reasons that they give for doing this is to sign up the newer generations with these digital banks. And over time, for either data and customers to be migrated to the newer uh, digital bank, you know, just because it has critical mass and trust at that point, or for as generations pass, for the digital bank to slowly grow and the other bank to fall to the background. And I think that may be a smart way to innovate because if you try to transform a large bank, then you are dealing with IT legacy systems, potentially huge system failures and disruptions, like we saw in the case of a TSP in the UK, where customers were able to see somebody else's account for four days 
is because of some data migration that was happening, you know, just around that time. And so in order to avoid fiascos like that, I think that uh, starting almost with a new baby and let it grow rather than trying to change an adult is probably a safer way to go. You know, I've said this before on this show that we had a a guest, Dan Schneider from Lemonade on the show, and he said, Mm -hmm. you know, the biggest challenge to digital transformation is legacy thinking. And it really gets down to a, a leadership and culture issue, which obviously when you're looking at entrepreneurship and innovation within financial institutions, that's a hindrance because you continue the old banking mindset. So do you think legacy financial institutions can actually compete on a digital innovation and personalization playing field with the big tech competitors? So there are ways that they can start to compete in that by putting layers on top of their legacy IT to make sure that, in a sense, those APIs that are being used in open banking in the external environment can also be used internally in order to make sure that the data that is siloed and unharmonized for that to be accessed still. But that's still actually quite expensive and requires a lot of energy and a lot can go wrong. So in the long run, it very much is in the bank's interest to, in a sense, transform its IT system and perhaps to actually almost start from scratch rather than trying to put band-aids in parts that are failing. But that is a long and scary process. And I think that's why we see all banks almost in a competition to announce how much investment they're putting into digital transformation, you know, 3 billion, 5 billion around the world. And that in a sense, that's not necessarily a sign of innovation, but a sign that, you know, these are the things that they need to do in order to stay alive. So let's take a small break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey, trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit microsoft.com slash financial services. Welcome back to Bank and Transform. So I am joined today by Pinar Askan, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Said Business School at Oxford University. Pinar has shared insights around research she has conducted at Oxford on the future of open banking and the impact of big tech firms on the banking ecosystem. So, Pinar, the research you have recently completed on the power of big tech players in banking, highlights the recent expansion of most all categories of banking by Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Google. 
Which player do you believe is best positioned today to provide a threat to legacy banking and why? I think that in a world where prediction and AI is starting to really dominate different industries as a, as a main capability, I believe the player that has the most advanced AI capabilities is probably going to dominate. The different big tech players have different starting points and therefore different competitive advantages. So when you look at Amazon, it has a, the strongest retail platform in the world. And that can help by you know, empowering small to medium businesses and they already started to do lending. And so that is a retail-based and much more commercially-based way to disrupt the financial sector. When you look at Facebook, the competitive advantage is completely different around the world, in rural areas of the world, and like, you know, in Turkey, where I'm from, and China, and India, people have Facebook and similar social media platforms before they have a bank account, and they might never have a bank account. And so this becomes an opportunity for Facebook to enable peer-to-peer -peer payments and start to get into even commerce that way by making sure that people who never had a bank account can now leapfrog that to go directly to social media-based peer-to-peer uh, payments. Google, in my opinion, is still probably in the most powerful position just because of its AI engine that they built across the sectors. And having an advertising-based business model really forced them to profile users to create as much data as possible about each individual user. And that is an asset no matter what market you go into. And in particularly in finance, if Google knows so much about me already from other areas of my life because, you know, I use their maps and exchange. You imagine map data combined with financial data. That is quite powerful. And so I think overall, Google, just based on its AI capability, is probably in the most advantageous position. But I also don't believe, as I said before, that all big tech is going to disrupt finance in the same way. They will attack it from different angles. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you look at Google's move now to partner with financial institutions and you, you really wonder if there's a Trojan horse there because you can't grab that customer base back once you've lost the relationship. And you're right. Google has so much information, they even have health information on you based on your search mechanisms that can say, you know, they can synthesize good health behavior with financial services. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Exactly. Fitness behavior and in parts of the world, Google even has access to central healthcare data just because healthcare providers are just so interested in AI-based diagnostic services because this can save lives and save the system lots of money. So Google is very powerful in there as well. So pivoting a bit, obviously one of the strong components of each of these big tech firms is their position in the payment space with Amazon Pay, Messenger, WhatsApp, Apple Pay, and Google Pay. Mm -hmm. With the onset of the pandemic, consumers immediately embraced digital payments, often using these platforms. Do you see this as the beginning of the demise of cash? Absolutely. And I think that in a sense, we are now realizing that not using cash is not only an option, but it's a better option, right? Not just from a hygienic point of view, but also it is just so much easier because when you don't use cash, when you use uh, mobile and in general digital payments, you generate data. And that data is not just useful for parties to give you better services. Like, you know, if they realize that I'm spending too much on coffee, then there's something that they can offer me for that, right? Better deals in Starbucks or something like that. Yeah. But also because it's also much more secure, it's much more traceable. And I'll give you an example. When we did the mobile payments research already, you know, 10 years ago, we saw that in parts of the world, like, you know, rural Africa, Coca-Cola trucks were at that point guarded 
you know, by men uh, with arms just because these guys had a lot of cash because everybody, all merchants were paying them in cash. Right. With the switch to mobile payments, there was an increased level of security that was given and all of that actually, in a sense, disappeared. And as you know, Africa ended up being one of the forefronts of, of mobile payments through Safaricom and M-Pesa. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I look today and I mentioned this before that I actually keep my wallet at home I put one card in my car in the glove box and all I use is my phone. And it actually, I'm making selections of merchants to go to based on their ability to accept mobile payments because I have better tracking. I have better guidance. There's better biometrics and I'm not touching cash. It's in a very short amount of time. And I, I took a trip before the pandemic to Rome and I spent the entire week and I never touched a card yeah. or cash until I left. And I want to leave a tip for the uh, the door person. And and but it's interesting because even that there's now the ability to pay P to P without using cash as well. So mm-hmm. isn't this a form of platformification with commerce and payments at the center of the ecosystem? Is it somewhat similar to the mirror of what's already happening in China with Alipay and Tencent? Yeah, and in fact, as you might have also seen from that report on the rise of platforms, China is a way in which the West uh, should be kind of looking uh, into as where things are going. However, one of the differences with China is that at the beginning, China was largely unregulated when it came to fintech and when it came to payments, etc., And the West took a lot slower to get there. And China is now, with the recent news about kind of anti-financial facing additional pressure from regulators, China is in a sense reversing a little bit back and becoming a bit more like the West. In truth, I think we are probably going to meet somewhere in the middle. We are going to get to that future more slowly. And regulators, especially, we see a lot of activity lately on, you know, regulating big tech platforms and data access and how much data is too much, etc. And so I think that, yes, we are going to see the future as, as, as a big platform. But I think that that platform is not going to look like a bank anymore. Some of the services that we consume through the bank are going to be integrated into a platform that we use just because it makes sense part of, as part of that platform. For example, Amazon might give us certain financial services, but then Apple will give us other ones, right? And so I think that this unbundling of services and the, the notion of a bank kind of changing in the future, that's probably irreversible. Well, it was interesting because it's really embedding financial services within our life. And it's not, you know, Brett King says, you know, banking is not a place you go. It's something you do. And I, I think that's going to become more and more the reality. I, I was fortunate enough last January to, to go to China before everything shut down. And it is just amazing the use of data for better lifestyles. You know, for those people that are unbanked and underbanked, those people with very low credit histories and such, they're able to provide credit because of their ability to use data in ways to track things such as, have you been making your rent payments? Have you been making utility payments? Have you ever gone bad in the relationships you've had overall without any credit bureau, but the ability to offer services that would not be offered otherwise? And we're starting to see this with the implementation of buy now, pay later implementation, things of that nature. So, you know, look in your crystal ball a little bit, not that any of us could have done this a year ago and been right, but where do you see financial services being in three to five years? 
Well, I think just combining this question with what you just said about embedded finance, you know, when you talk to investors today, embedded finance is one of the top things that they say. And I think it's also a reaction to the rising power of big tech. And, you know, regulators are realizing that when I speak with regulators about open banking, they say, you know, what keeps me up at night is not open banking implementation. What keeps me up at night is Amazon, right? Or Google. Yeah. And so I think that the financial sector is changing in a way that is irreversible. And we will see new players, not just big tech, but also, you know, the the, the likes of the extensions and EYs of the world coming into. And airlines are going to start to offer us banking services because it is now possible through uh, regulatory changes. And so what I would predict is that in the future, we're going to consume uh, financial services, use them wherever it makes sense in our life. And they're going to be integrated and we're probably not going to really notice. We're not going to make a whole lot of choices when it comes to that, because when it comes to finance, convenience is the kind of the first deciding factor. And that means that if it's convenient for a big tech platform to offer us loans because they're realizing that we're struggling in some way because they have access to the data, then that's what we're going to go for, because it will be too cumbersome for us to go shopping for a loan at that point in time. So embedded finance is the future and we will not be able to avoid big tech, but I am hopeful that the existing financial institutions are reforming themselves enough to still play a part in that future. You know, it's interesting how we have redefined convenience to being how fast and easier mobile app is as opposed to how close the branch is. It really shows how banking and everything has changed so much in such a short time. Panar, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been really enjoyable. I would love to sit in on one of your classes because you knew banking better than some of the bankers do that I talked to. So looking from outside, people are really honest. Uh, And so it's easier for me to build a a realistic picture of what banking is becoming uh, just because of the position that I'm in. But thank you so much. I, I love this conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. We are very fortunate to be rated a top five banking podcast and to be the recipient of three international awards for podcast excellence in 2021. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. And we'd really appreciate if you could take a few minutes to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the really exciting research we're doing on the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, open banking puts the consumer at the center of the relationship where they belong. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.